Luke chapter 12, verses 31 through 34. We'll look at this portion of Scripture and backtrack a little bit after we read it to gather the context that has flowed into the statements by Christ as we consider the topic of fear not, little flock. Begin reading with me in verse 31. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in heaven that faileth not. Where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Christ gives familiar words that we know very well as it's something that has already been said in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This theme throughout Christ's teaching is apparent that he preached on this multiple times. Uh, you'll see Christ has a few themes throughout the Gospels that stays not only consistent, which all of his sermons and discussions were consistent, but at the same time, some of them that are in his sermons multiple times as he talks to people. Now, if the Bible says something once, that's all we need to know that it is truth and it is good. But when Christ says something multiple times, as it gives us a further illustration of that the hearers themselves needed to hear this multiple times. So that specific phrase, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, is something that we can take hold of and know that this is something Christ wanted them to hear. Now, as we look at as a little flock that should not fear, this isn't just something that Christ says randomly. You'll notice it says, but rather, in the very first verse that we read this morning. That means when he said, but rather, there was prior context that he has already addressed for us. Now, Christ has already been speaking to a group of people to whom you will know very well as the individuals that were coming to him multiple times as Christ is calling out some of the Pharisees and hypocrites that are there trying to trick Jesus and trying to kind of find a way to trap him in his words. He begins at the very beginning of chapter 12 by saying, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. It ends up leading to the point where a man is going to come to him and ask for Christ to settle a dispute between him and his brother in verse 13. You'll see that it says, And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother, that he defied the inheritance with me. Christ was not just somebody that came and people would come to him for teaching, but they would also come to him in a way as a judge, a discerner, that they would come and say, Jesus, you're wise, tell us what we should do in this situation. And that's a good thing. Very often a pastor, the elders, the ministry of the church is there not just to give you an exposition of Scripture, but that they may equally take that exposition of Scripture and give 
thoughts on it that are wise and counsel in a way that is supposed to not just apply to theology but to life. So this isn't a bad thing that he's coming to Christ and asking him a little bit about what should we do, talk to my brother. I do find it interesting, though, that people would come to him in this kind of scenario and say, hey, my brother has something that's mine. I want you to fix it, right? There is nothing that will quite tear apart a family than an inheritance, There's nothing that will quite make people fight like trying to get something that they didn't earn that's not theirs, <laughs> right? It will make them tear each other apart. I've seen it uh, at a distance in my family. I've seen it in other people's family. And you will see people all of a sudden for something they never earned, they didn't deserve, and it's not theirs, begin to tear each other to pieces. And here this man is doing the same. And I want to stop right there and just say that the sound of a child is beautiful. And if I can't out-preach a child, I need to sit down. So that's a beautiful sound, amen? Praise God, I'd rather hear it here than not. But here, this man comes to Jesus and says, Master, speak to my brother, go to my brother, I want you to settle a dispute. And I love Jesus' answer to him, man, who made me judge or divider over you? He basically says, why are you coming to me to settle this dispute? This should be something that y'all are able to do yourselves between each other. You should be able to settle these disputes. Well, he ends up using a parable here that he speaks to them about a man that had plenteous and he had so much that he couldn't contain it in his own barns and he couldn't contain it in his own house to where he built houses and barns. He built this huge establishment that he could put everything he had and save it for later and yet his life was required of him before he could even enjoy it, do anything with it. So in other words, everything he had saved for was useless. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, would say is vanity of vanities. (laughs) We seek something, we desire it, yet we're not able to actually fully enjoy it. See, this man was planning for the future, and Jesus isn't condemning planning for the future, but he's trying to draw their attention to what he's about to speak to them about, of this idea of anxiety and fear of the future. Jesus, after he gives this parable, which... You can go back and read it and see how this man was obsessed with things and obsessed with the future and obsessed over making sure that the future was exactly as if he wanted it to be to the point to where we can implicitly understand that Christ is almost saying that he was worrisome and fearful, that he took much thought for the future to where he was over-obsessing with it, to where Jesus says in verse 22 of Luke chapter 12, therefore I say unto you. In other words, because of the parable that I've given you, because we see this individual to whom has built a barn to prepare for everything that could possibly happen, he's made sure that all of his ducks are in a row, he's made sure that everything is exactly as though he wants it to be. Therefore, I remember back when I was probably, I don't even remember what year this was, this was it's probably in 2002 when the big company scandal happened with Enron. Y'all may remember that name. And everybody was in such a fret because that had a lot of individuals' retirements called up into it, right? 
And everybody was scared to death. What's going to happen in the future? It's the same. You see, this isn't something that's foreign to us to obsess over what's going to happen next. Uh, This idea of building for the future, which I will tell you, I have accounts in certain agencies that I'm planning for the future. This isn't something that I'm saying don't plan. I do, but it's the over-obsession that Jesus is about to address. As he says, therefore, I say unto you, he looks at all of his disciples... He's talking to a multitude here. He's talking to people that may be the Pharisees and the hypocrites. He may be talking to some people that are kind of unsure what to do. And then he's talking here specifically to his students, his followers, his disciples, and says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. He says, take no thought for your life. Now, this is not to say don't think about what you're going to eat next. I've laughed that I have two children that live meal to meal. <laughs> we live from breakfast to lunch and lunch to dinner. I can feed them in the morning and immediately, at a, at, by the way, again, 6 o'clock after they eat, uh, they will ask immediately when snack. You know when snack is. It's probably around 9 o'clock. Small bellies get hungry every three hours. And, okay, well, after snack, when's lunch, Dad? What are we having? After lunch, when's next snack? After that snack, you know, it's, I feel like I'm raising hobbits. What's, when is second breakfast, right? <laughs> When are we going to eat again? And we live from meal to meal to meal. And I'm not, it's, Jesus here is not saying, don't think about what you're going to eat next. I'm already looking forward to lunch today. I saw what Rebecca was cooking, and I saw what y'all were bringing in. I'm looking forward to it. It's not saying don't think about where your next meal is going to be or don't plan in any way, but it's giving this idea of taking thought in the sense of over-obsession of where everything is going to be and what will happen and how it will happen and what's next and what's, what's going to happen. And, and Jesus says the reason that we shouldn't take such thought and care to the point to where it abuses our own body is because the life, our life, is more than meat. Our life is more than material. Our body is more than raiment. He focuses our attention on the fact we are more than just physical entities. You know, a dog is just a physical entity, right? And it literally lives to just find food. That's basically all it does. It runs off instinct. But we are beings that are more than physical. We are equally spiritual. We have two types of components to us. We have the spiritual part, the body, uh, the soul and the spirit, and then we have the physical, the body, and together we make a human being. We're more than just the physical, but we're equally the spiritual here. And so he says, you who are more than just a physical being, you should live in a way that understands this. You see, it's strange how he does this because he says... Your life is more than meat and the body is more than raiment. The idea here is you're more than just a physical being, so act like it, basically. Think like it. Be an individual that understands that your life is not just uh, ended at the end of your existence. It's not as though we place a person in the grave and that is it. The existential mentality of our current age to where everything revolves around this current existence of life and nothing past it not only is false, but it gives us no hope and destroys our Christian worldview and culture. Why? Because we are individuals who do not just live for the now, but we are equally spiritual. And he says we should act and think like it. Verse 24, he's going to begin an example because he's going to use two examples as he leads in to not fearing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, 
Connecting it to the parable before us, holding uh, all that you have in barns, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? He says, consider the ravens. And this would be a very applicable uh, analogy for people that lived in Israel. The reason is, and just as a body, a landmass, you'll recognize that it is literally the pivot point between the Middle East, between Europe, and between Africa. That's why people fight over it still today, because that little bitty piece of land, especially of that time period, was the way everybody traversed from one to another. It, it was a trade route. Well, it wasn't just a trade route for humans. It was equally a migration route for birds. Uh, you sometimes see them here, where you see the geese flying south and north. If you ever go to the delta of Mississippi, where we lived close to for about six years, it was amazing to me as you go out into the delta, Marks, Clarksdale, um, Quitman County, sometimes those areas, and you'd look up and you'd see thousands of birds. You know, you didn't look up too long because there are thousands of birds right above you. <laughs> you don't want to stare too long. Uh, you know, close your mouth, <laughs> right? You know, you don't want to do that. But there's thousands of them flying. The same thing with Israel. That trade route, that area of land where they migrate from north to south during winter to summer, and they're going up and down, up and down, they recognize birds. They understood the ravens, and he draws their attention to birds and says, look at birds. They don't sow, they don't reap. They don't have a storehouse, they don't have barns. And even though they don't have all that stuff that we have, yet God takes care of them. It's his physical creation. He shows them in his goodness. He provides for these animals. You know, God is not just the creator God. God is equally the sustainer and provider God. Amen? It's not that just God turned on the world and then walked back like a clockmaster. If God does not continually hold together all of existence, it would fly apart. Praise God he holds it together. As Paul would say, in him we move and have our being. The reason that the birds are fed is because God takes care of them. Now, they do work for it. If you've ever seen birds fight in a yard, they do. But how is it that they're able to fight over the seed? God blesses with rain. God blesses the plants with growth. God blesses the plants. They didn't plant the plant. They didn't uh, till the plant. They didn't prune the plant. Yet God blesses it to bring forth seed to where they are able to eat. And, and he looks and says, if God takes care of his physical creation, how much more are ye better than fowls? As a spiritual entity, somebody that is not just a physical entity, but somebody whose life is more than meat and the body is more than raiment, how much more does God care for you? Specifically, not just as a human, but as a covenant child of God who was elected before the foundation of the world. If his son has died for you, if his son represented you on the cross, if his spirit is in you and you are preserved in him, if God cares for the fowls, do you think he doesn't care for you? Of course he cares and watches and protects and keeps. As many times as bad things can happen to me on a daily basis, I'm always amazed at how many things don't happen to me on a daily basis. <laughs> how many things it could have. All the possibilities and scenarios that could have happened, and it is only by the grace of God that I am still even here. Praise be to God that he cares for us more than fowls. Cares for us more than just as we are placed in the grave, but cares for us all the way to eternity. And then he says, attached to this, 
And which of you, with taking thought, can add to a stature one cubit? Which of you can make yourself taller? You can even apply this financially as it is to the barns and with the ravens and uh, with, with the type of financial gain that he's addressing here. Which of you can really add? You know, I know it is by the sweat of a man's face that he lives, but at the same time, without God's blessings, we have nothing. I can strive, I can strive, I can strive, and without God blessing, nothing happens. Which of us can really add to us at all? In a physical way, I remember when I was in eighth grade, I hit uh, 13, and my mother thought I was going to grow a few more inches like my dad did. I have been the same height since I was 13 years old. <laughs> and my mother bought a bunch of extra-large shirts because she thought he's going to keep growing. And, you know, then it wasn't like kids now that have a different uh, wardrobe every other week. Uh, you know, we were given clothes, and we wore them just about from that year to the next year, right? You know, we wore them in those jeans. Uh, people buy them now with holes in them. We wore them until they had holes in them. And that's just what we did. And my mother bought me clothes, and I looked like I was wearing circus tents for two years because I couldn't add a cubit to my height. I wish I could have. I'll never be a big preacher. <laughs> I'll always be a five foot nine preacher, 10 if I don't slump. And that's just the way that it is. It's the way that I have to live. I can't add a cubit to it. I have limitations. And he uses this, if you are not able to do that thing which is least, if you can't even add to your height, height is... Uh, controlled by both biology and environmental factors. If you can't control your biology and if the environmental factors are outside of your control, if you cannot add a cubit to your height, the least of things that is in life, why do we take thought for the rest? There are so many things outside of my control. This week was such a proof to that as we were having to deal, as I said, between two different uh, agencies, which I'll tell you, um, I believe it was President Ronald Reagan which said that the most frightening words is to hear is we're from the government and we're here to help, right? <laughs> Sometimes that can be a little bit frightening and you trying to work in the system and do all that you can and it seems like you're spinning your wheels and at one point I, as Rebecca and I had were dealing with the situation that we were in, I said, honey, just remember our God is bigger than this situation. I have to remind myself that constantly. I, I've, I've adopted the motto of Elder Sonny Piles when he said that he worries very little over things which he has no control. That doesn't mean he doesn't worry at all. There's some amount of anxiety that's attached to anything, and anxiety is healthy to some degree. Um, it keeps us aware. It keeps us conscious. It keeps us from walking out into traffic, right? Uh, jumping off a roof, you know. It keeps us from doing some things. Anxiety does, but at the same time, an overabundance of anxiety is unhealthy. And he says, if you can't control the smallest of things, the least, the, the minimum things, why would you consider or take thought for the things that you obviously have no control over? He uses another analogy in verse 27 as he says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. He looks from the ravens to the plants. He goes from the sky to the ground. He uses two things that they could see in eye shot, two things they understood. He says, look at the ravens, now look at the lilies. He says, look at these flowers. Consider how they grow. They toil not. They spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He says, first, these lilies 
They don't toll like we are. They're not anxious. They're not worrying. They don't constantly spin. Their tires are not just constantly moving in their head, yet they grow. I've been a little frustrated this past year. Um, this summer has been so hectic, I have not been able to do lawn care as, like, as I like. I typically do, am a lot more on top of it. Uh, you know, I'm like the typical man that likes to have his grass cut just perfectly so he can stand back with his hands on his hip and say, look at this, right? <laughs> look at what I have done. And the typical mentality of a man, but this year hasn't went as well, but it's been frustrating that I will cut the grass. And about a day later, because of the amount of rain that we've gotten, Dallas grass has popped up within a day. <laughs> it's just weed. And I'll go through, pick them up, but it seems like I blink and they're back. There's no toiling it took. I, I couldn't even see the growth, yet it's already grown. And take that from the weed that I can't get rid of in my yard to something like a beautiful flower that there seems to be no real motion as it grows. It somehow just blossoms. Last week, I, uh, two weeks ago, I drove past and saw that the tree on this side of the church was starting to blossom. Beautiful white flowers. And I thought, I hadn't even noticed that happen. And that's how plants are. They just do it. There's no toiling. There's no really watching them grow. It just happens. And he says, look at this. Look at this example of something that doesn't worry. It doesn't fret. It's not toiling. It's not spinning. And Jesus says that Solomon in all his glory meaning all of his pomp and show, all of his uh, wives, all of his riches, all of his land, all of the temple and its beauty, all of it covered in gold, the temple of God filled with the Shekinah glory of God at the time that Solomon was there in all of its glory. Man's work is in no way comparable to just the simple work of God in a lily. It didn't toll. It didn't work. And he asks the question again because he goes from one and then asks the question. He goes from another example, then asks the question, if then God so clothed the grass, you look at the grass, if God takes care of it, clothes it, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast in the oven. He says, if this grass which comes and goes, God takes care of it, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? Now, when he says, O ye of little faith, he's not saying if you just do what I'm telling you to and have a little bit of faith, God will do it. I think he's saying that in spite of our lack of faith, God still cares for us. That's a blessing, isn't it? <laughs> that in my unbelief, as the man said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief, God is able to do above abundant, exceeding abundant above all I can think or ask, as Ephesians tells us that in spite of my lack of trust in him on a daily basis, yet God still provides for me. In my darkest times, God is still there. In the brightest moments that I think that I've done so well, God ultimately is the source of my blessings. You see, in all of these moments, he says, Oh, ye of little faith, you who are anxious, you who are overwhelmed, you who have lost sight. And he's not condemning here in the sense that he's talking down to a person and saying, Oh, you of little faith. I've noticed that sometimes when I've tried to adopt this phraseology here, and I'll tell it to somebody else, I'm like, Well, you just lack faith. And, you know, that, that's how it sounds coming off my lips. But when Jesus says it, he's not talking down to an individual. But what he's saying is, Consider that even in your lack of faith, I provide for you. Even when you don't fully comprehend that I'm with you, I'm with you. He's not condescending to the person in the sense that he's talking down to them, but he's giving them assurance that in your lack of faith, 
I am with you. Now that is, in a sense, an exhortation that we should turn our eyes above. But that's secondary to the first thing that you're of little faith, yet I still clothe you. He then says, and seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be of doubtful mind. Don't be doubting. Listen to these words. He says, take no thought. Be ye, neither be ye of a doubtful mind. He's going to go on to say, fear not. He continually reminds them, do not take thought, do not doubt, do not fear, do not be overwhelmed with anxiety. And he here says, of a doubtful mind, don't be like that in taking thought what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knoweth what ye have need of these things. He's going to get into verse 31 where he says, but, seek, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God. And then in verse 32 when he says, fear not. He's comparing the nations of the world here that seek after natural riches, secular wealth, and he's going to tell them, don't you seek it, but you seek after God. And this isn't just to say that you're seeking after God and therefore you're going to get the riches that the nations seek after. See, that's the way sometimes people look at it and they say, seek ye after the kingdom of God and God's going to give you everything you want, right? He's going to give you exactly what you want. That's not the context of what we're getting at. Notice it is qualified with, ye, your father knoweth ye that ye have need of these things. The actual things that you are having added to you are the things of which the Father knows you have need. Now, some things you may have need of that I don't have need of. Earlier in the prayer request, we were discussing the fact that there are times in which uh, God blesses an individual with a sense of serenity and peace in their last moments, and that's what old theologians used to call dying grace. God blesses them with a sense of peace and a longing for home. You know, why do, I, why do I use that analogy? Because right now I don't need that kind of grace, but there are other people in the world right now that need that kind of grace. Now, some of you who don't have two little rebellious children running around waking up at 6 o'clock, y'all don't need parenting grace, but I'll tell you, I need a lot of it. <laughs> uh, every single day I need parenting grace. But God knows what things we have need of. He knows individually what we need. It's a blessing to me to know that while God is with you, attending to your needs. He is equally omnipresent attending to my needs. There are times in which I can't attend to everybody at the same time. My, my dear wife realized that I couldn't do as much as I wanted to this past summer, and I've been unable to uh, get a few things done around the house, and she has shown me charity because I can't do it all for everyone. But praise be unto God, though she has a lacking husband, and though she has a husband that can't do it all. Though they, my boys have a dad that can't always meet every need, we have a God that knows what we are in need of. 
at all times. The nations seek after the riches. They're seeking after what they think they need. But he says, your father knows what ye have need of. Therefore, but rather where we started, seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Seek God in everything you need, as God knows that you need it, he will provide for you. And this is why he then looks and says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He looks and says, fear not. Multiple times in the Bible, you'll see people approaching God and they'll immediately fall down in fear. They won't walk up and say, hey, bro, how you doing? You know, like we see people talk about God today. They typically fall down in fear. But praise God that in our anxiety, he doesn't feed on it, but he says, fear not. Fear not. First, skipping the phrase little flock, which we'll get back to in a second, he says, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, he doesn't say he gives you part of the kingdom or he gives you things out of the kingdom. Now, when Rebecca was out of town in Colorado, I remember the first morning my boys woke up at about 5.20 and came walking in there and said, we want breakfast. And I said, you're not getting breakfast, but you can lay in my bed until it's time for breakfast. You're not getting it at 5.20. Well, after Rebecca got home, that continued at about 5.20. They realized, hey, Daddy let us in the bed. So they, they, they started making a habit of, hey, it's not breakfast time. Can we lay in your bed? And I, I, um, I, I, about a week of that, and I said, all right, this is going to stop. <laughs> this is my bed, and this is my room. They can have some things, but it's not all at their expense. Stay out of my office, right? Don't go in my office. Don't mess with my office. Don't do things to my office. This is my bedroom. This is my bathroom. They can have some things here or there, but overall, it's, some things are off limit because it's mine. The beauty of this verse is not just that he says there are things in the kingdom that are at your expense. There are things in the kingdom that God provides for you. But as Romans chapter 8 tells us, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. It's not that part of the kingdom is yours, that some things in the kingdom of yours, but that God provides to you the kingdom, everything in the kingdom, the full riches of God's grace at Christ's expense, everything that you could need at any moment, every spiritual blessing in Christ, uh, every piece of and comfort, all the mercy that God has in store daily, the unlimited, unmerited, unconditional grace and love, and God, uh, love of God is given to you. Everything. The kingdom of God is given to you. Fear not. Now, that gives us a reason to not to fear, right? <laughs> that gives us a reason not to be overwhelmed with anxiety because everything that God has provided for us is in its fullness, but notice how he says little flock. Now, he parallels this. There's a reason why he does it in this way, the nations of the world. Now, you think the nations of the world, you're thinking some big uh, entity, some big powerful being, some big establishment, and he paints the nations in contrast with the little flock. You have the nations, which are impressive. Uh, at that time, you had already saw many wonders of the world. You had saw Babylon's hanging gardens. You saw the walls around Babylon that are said to be uh, 300 feet tall and about 70 feet wide, big enough to where people couldn't get over it, and big enough to where they could have three sets of chariots riding all the way around Babylon to defend itself. You had this mighty nation. 
You had the Roman nation uh, that had m- many wonders of the world there. You had the pyramids there in Egypt. You had all of these beauties of the nations around that sought after riches, that they would look at our, themselves, these poor people that were following Christ, the maimed, the sick, the blind, those that were forsaken of other people, yet he looks at them and says, Fear not, little flock. You who the world overlooks... You who the world just kind of goes past and says, that's not really impressive. He says, fear not. You see, we, uh, the, the, the church of God may at times feel small, but praise be unto our Savior. We may be a little flock, but we have a very big and mighty God. And his kingdom is bigger than the kingdoms of this world, and his power is greater than any president, king, or any type of nation here. Our God is greater. He says, fear not. He looks and says, sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags that wax not old, a treasure in heaven. He says, what we should be seeking after is not the things of this world, but the things of heaven, because they're of greater substance, is what he's saying. They're of greater substance. They fail not. Notice this. He does two things. One, they fail not. Now, there are times I may seek comfort in something of this world, and it can fail. There are many times that I would think that something is going to be my self-care, my therapy, what makes me feel good, and then I acquire it, I have it, and it's empty, it's vain, it's, it's completely transparent, and it gives me nothing that I was looking for. Yet, if we seek God and His kingdom, it never fails. The peace that it gives... I've seen you see people after a traumatic incident seek to find peace, whether it is in a bottle or in a pill, and they end up making themselves worse on the latter end than they were ever were on the beginning because what they're seeking happiness is in is shallow. Yet there's one thing that never fails. And you can take this to other areas. I, there are things that I enjoy that I, I expect to bring me happiness, but sometimes it is going to fail. He says, where no thief approacheth. Not only does it not fail, it can't be taken away from you. There are things that I pride myself in that can be very easily taken away from me. So easily taken away in a heartbeat, it can be taken away. In just a moment, a thief can take it, whether it is Satan or somebody in this world can steal it from me, but the treasure I have in Christ cannot be stolen. And then neither moth corrupteth. He goes from saying it cannot, fa- be fail, it cannot fail, it cannot be taken, to the final principle of the heavenly blessings we have in Christ to saying, neither moth corrupteth. Not only does it not fail, it can't be taken, but ultimately it never decays, right? I was so proud of myself when we first moved to Oxford, Mississippi, because we finally got new cell phones. I was so happy. We, we, when we get a cell phone, we keep it for a while, right? We're not the folks that replace it every year. I work with some folks that replace it every year, and I finally got a new cell phone. And I really need to slow down, and I have. You, you probably don't believe that, but I have. But I go to get out of it. I'm gung-ho. I'm ready to go start services. I get out of the vehicle. I forgot my cell phone's in my lap that I just bought like that week, and all I see is something flying through the air. <laughs> Crack. <laughs> I was so happy about that new little toy I had, and that new little toy I had broke my heart. <laughs> it was corruptible. It could be destroyed. But there's something we have in Christ that never is able to be corrupted. 
And he then says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Notice he does not say where your heart is. We'll think what we love, that's what we treasure, but that's true to some extent. But in actuality, what we treasure typically is where our heart or affections lie. If I put my affections a certain direction, let's say if I've devoted a large amount of time and money and effort into a specific venture or maybe to a specific um, company, um, maybe it is, as it were here in the context, the future and the financial security of the future. And I have placed my treasure in that. I put my focus on that. My affection is going to follow that. We would think if I set my affection there, then I'm going to treasure it, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if your treasure is someplace, your affections will follow. For example, if I ignore my spouse and I ignore my children, I'm not going to really have my affections towards them. But if I wake up in the morning and pray for my spouse and I try to make sure I do everything I can for them that day, when I get home, what am I doing? What every man does, I'm sitting there waiting for my wife. Is she going to notice? <laughs> Is she going to give me a compliment? Is she going to pat me on the back because I did something that was just completely easy and everybody else does? Well, you know, that, that, that's the idea. I'm waiting. I, now my heart, my affections, I have emotionally invested into it. It was my treasure, and now my heart is there. And you see, Jesus just doesn't say, stop worrying about it. And that's my, that's my typical way of doing it, because I'm not much of a worrier in some categories. I typically am just like, okay, well, that happened. That was bad. <laughs> I'm glad that's over. But Jesus gives us a way to transition from worry. It's not just that he says, don't worry. He says, consider around you that God protects. Consider around you that God provides. Consider the fact that you have limitations and you really can't control very much. Consider all of that. Then diligently make your God your treasure. Because if we're looking up, we're not going to be looking around. And if our affection isn't in the things of this world, it's not going to break our heart when they're destroyed. When the kingdoms around us fall and our treasure is in heaven, our affections have not been hurt because our affections were never there. You see, this makes our mind transcend what's around us. Does this mean that Brother Josh Winslet's going to go home and take no thought for the future? I wake up about four times a night and I open my eyes to make sure I can hear if my boys are okay. Boy, children will make a praying man out of anybody. Some, most nights I'll wake up and I'll walk around the house and make sure the doors are locked, make sure we didn't forget to do that. Sometimes I'll wake up and just peek my head in their room. I'm not going to pretend like, fear not, take no thought. It's something that I've mastered. But occasionally I have to lay down my head and close my eyes and say, God, I am limited. I place my worry at the foot of your cross. I know that in his body... 
that was broken for me and his blood that was shed for me, that I have a home that is sealed and forever mine, eternally mine, regardless of anything that will ever happen in this life. And if my barns are destroyed, if my life is taken right now, then my treasure's in heaven. He knows what I need. He knows what I need right now. He knows what I need tomorrow. He is the provider regardless of my lack of faith. And in the end and final analysis of all things, regardless of the circumstances of life, when I close my eyes, if the last thing that I see is anxiety and fear, the first thing I will see when I open them will be heaven's morning dawning. The first breath that I take, after the last breath that I take in this polluted world, the first breath that I take will be of the air of heaven. And, you know, they asked one time a hymn writer if she was heartbroken because she had lost her sight. And she says, no, I wish I that I had been born blind so that the first thing that I would have ever seen would have been my Savior when I died. Praise be to God that our affections are not in this world but our treasure is in heaven and that we can live a life without fear because our affections are placed outside of where moth and rust can happen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your kindness. Lord, let us not fear and have anxiety and doubt and lack of faith because of the things of this world. Lord, the world is always in this transitioning period. Gracious God, it seems like everything is constantly changing at all times and everything is in motion. And nothing is consistent and nothing stays the same. And entropy continues to just affect us all in such a way to where it's so discouraging when we can't even look at what's going on around us without seeing death and decay. But Lord, I pray as the hymn writer wrote, abide with us so that in the face of these types of discouraging and depressing moments that we can look up to you knowing that our treasure is in heaven and likewise our affections continue, our heart continues to be focused on you. Lord, let us know our limitations, let us know our days are numbered, and let us know that you, in spite of what goes on around us, is a good God that provides for us. Lord, let us seek you, knowing that you do provide everything that we need. Let us know that you are not the source of the problem, but you are the source of the solution. O oh, gracious God, overwhelm us with this truth. Let us find peace and hope and have our fears dismissed. In your Son, Jesus Christ, and amen.